Hello, I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth, where we bring the truth of Christ crucified to bear on pretty much whatever comes across our path as God's people. This is a partner-only edition of The Painful Truth, but as always, feel free to share it around, to flick it on to friends or colleagues or brothers and sisters at church, because one of the ways that I'm very glad to be your partner is to provide you with some stuff that you can use to stimulate good discussion a bit of mutual encouragement and edification with each other by bouncing off these ideas that we talk through each week. Now, this week on The Painful Truth, I'm diverging from my own principles, really, in that I I don't really like addressing newsworthy or topical subjects. It seems to me there's more than enough people on the internet opinionating and blatherskiting away on, on the latest things that are happening and giving their hot takes. I tend to prefer to leave those sorts of issues and contemporary controversies alone. But there was an issue that came up just in the last week or so that caused me to stop and think. It's a set of painful and sad accusations against a very prominent and well-loved evangelical Christian leader of the past number of decades. And it prompted the following reflections about the nature of sin and in particular, conspicuous sin. Well, it's happened again. A much-loved, high-profile evangelical leader has been accused of sexual impropriety. I won't mention his name, not only because I've got no way of knowing whether these accusations are true or not, but because his particular name and this particular case is not the reason for this week's reflections on the painful truth. I'm thinking about this issue because I wonder whether you get the same sick feeling in your guts as I do when you hear about these things. Is there no one left with integrity, not even one? Can't these people just keep their pants on for heaven's sake? And I have to confess, where on earth do they find the time? But why is it that these high-profile Christian leaders, the megachurch pastors, the denominational head honchos, the international speaker circuit guys, why is it that they so regularly seem to have their feet of clay exposed to us all and smashed? I guess at one level it's because of their very prominence. The sins of some men are conspicuous, says the Apostle Paul, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And the sins of famous pastors are news, whereas I guess you'd say the sins of ordinary pastors are known only by a very few. But although the sins themselves might look quite different in character and appearance between ordinary pastors and megachurch pastors, they are still sins nevertheless. Like loving God, sin is a single thing, a unitary phenomenon. It has one object and one goal. Sin is the proud rejection of God and his ways and the exalting of ourselves and our purposes above everything else. And just as the love of God is in a sense one single thing, and yet manifests itself in multiple virtues, so sin, although it's really just one kind of thing, it reveals itself in all kinds of different vices. So what, for example, would we say are the common but less conspicuous vices of the ordinary pastor? Say the pastor of a of a small, just viable kind of church with 80 adults that potters along year by year. 
What are the vices, perhaps the common vices of that pastor? Despair, perhaps? Or laziness? Self-pity, I wonder. Or blame-shifting or resentment of others? A persecution complex? Perhaps some comfort gluttony? Or some comfort alcohol abuse? Or perhaps an unwillingness to take risk, just in case it fails yet again, and my battered self-image takes yet another blow? A lack of success, of outward success, it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts our pride, and wounded pride looks for relief wherever it can find it, and so does the ordinary church pastor. But the megachurch leader, by contrast, has outward success to burn, and he faces a different set of temptations often. I was chatting not long ago with a fairly prominent US-based Christian author, and he asked me just in the course of conversation what I thought was the besetting problem of the megachurch. And I sort of fumbled around for a bit and mumbled something about perhaps a lack of personal relationship among the members or something like that. And he said, no, it's corruption. And the truth of his observation hit home immediately. Because imagine just how difficult it must be to become such a beloved and powerful leader within a massive group of people. Imagine what that does to your pride and your integrity. The high-profile church leader so easily begins to believe that he must indeed be worthy of all that admiration and acclaim, that he does have a special place in the church and in God's purposes, that the little embellishments and exaggerations he starts to make in order to burnish his image are helpful for the church. They provide an inspiring example. That his sins and weaknesses are understandable and forgivable, given the extraordinary pressure he's under, given how lonely and hunted he often feels. That he deserves those expensive toys that he indulges himself with from time to time. And that any problems that do emerge in his life or in the ministry, well, they're less important than the continued growth and success of the ministry, which is, of course, what God would want. And so problems can be rationalised and minimised. And even his poor or perhaps even abusive treatment of church members or employees starts to be seen as the cracking of a few eggs in order to make God's omelette. I think it would be very easy for a church pastor of that size church to begin to believe, in other words, that he really is the most important person in the room. And this is the essence of pride, which in turn, according to Augustine anyway, is the essence of sin. And so a double life develops, a life that has a public church persona on one side and the various compromises and sins of a private existence on the other until it all comes out, as it always does, and we shake our heads and get a sick feeling in our guts, as we do again this week. But it does leave you wondering, doesn't it? How would your integrity hold up if you were the leader of a church like that? Would you also be very capable of compartmentalising the dysfunctional and sinful habits of your life that were emerging? And maintaining and perhaps even believing in the image that everyone else saw of the godly, inspiring pastor. Personally, I wouldn't like to find out. Now, none of this is to say that large churches are a bad idea because their leadership 
can breed corruption like this, any more than it is to say that small churches are a bad idea because their leadership can breed complacency or inwardness or laziness. But it does say that in every case, godly character is the thing, and it's far more important in a leader than gifting or even results. And we should know this, of course. We should know it from the pastoral epistles, because that's how they repeatedly describe the elder or overseer. Certain gifts are necessary, of course, the ability to teach and the ability to manage a household, I mentioned. But these abilities or gifts are lodged within a list of character traits, a character dominated by faithfulness to the true deposit of the gospel, and a life of godliness and self-control and sobriety and so on that has been shaped by that gospel. And tellingly to me, in 1 Timothy 4, just after that discussion in 1 Timothy 3 about what makes for a good overseer or deacon, in 1 Timothy 4, Timothy is urged to persist and grow in this very gospel-shaped character, to pursue godliness, to keep a close watch on yourself, says Paul, and on the teaching. Persist in this, he says, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so after this latest apparent failure by one of the great ones, we might allow ourselves a few moments of sadness and of head-shaking. But let it remind us to renew a close watch on ourselves, whoever we are, and whatever our role is, and whatever size church we're part of. Let us keep a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching. Because whatever our circumstances, wouldn't it be a tragedy if we, after preaching to others, be disqualified ourselves? Well, a few reflections on the conspicuous sins of the megachurch pastor and how we should respond to them. Thanks for listening and thanks too for the encouraging comments and feedback that you keep sending in. Last week's episode, last week's book talk episode with John Woodhouse about Tom Holland's book received quite a lot of feedback. Thank you for that. And I've got more of those book talks coming up in the next little while. And as I said at the beginning, feel free to keep sharing these posts around with others. Thanks for joining me again on The Painful Truth. Keep sending in that feedback and questions and thoughts. Love to hear from you. Just email me at tonyjpain at me.com and I will get back to you. might take me a week or two, but I will answer every email. Thanks once again for being here on The Painful Truth. Talk to you again next week. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.